This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, a pretty devastating study on the value of common orthopaedic operations and procedures. A better way of treating high blood pressure, according to Australian research. The benefits of exercise for your eyes and... Over the past 18 months, science has been scrambling to make sense of the pandemic. How much do lockdowns help or harm? Now, a new report has drawn together data from multiple sources to provide a snapshot of how Australia fared through its first year with COVID-19. The report from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare paints a mostly positive picture. Compared with countries with a similar population mix and health systems, there are tens of thousands of Australians alive today who would not have been if we'd had a similar death rates to, say, Canada, Sweden or the UK. But the lockdowns that saved those lives have had other effects, good and bad, and the pandemic has not treated segments of Australian society equally. Here to talk about the report is its author, Dr Linnell Moon. Welcome, Linnell. Thanks very much, Tegan. So let's start with the good news. Lives have been saved from COVID, as we said, but we've also seen lives saved from other sources, some a bit unexpected. Uh, yeah, so there were certainly some um, positive impacts um, from basically from the restrictions that needed to be put in place. One, and overall, our death rates were lower than uh, the average over the previous five years. But then specific um, causes of death stood out. One of those was um, respiratory infections where death rates were, were significantly lower than previous years. Like um, and another area, uh, exactly, yes. And another area where death rates were much lower was um, road deaths, where there was 25% fewer road deaths um, in April 2020 compared with the same month in the previous year. Is that just because people weren't moving around as much? Yes, I would, I would say that's exactly why. So that's the that's the good news. But there was also costs to lock, lockdown. Mental health, which was one of the big ones that I think a lot of people were looking at, uh, issues went up, but then they've sort of stabilised. But what other costs might there have been, for example, people missing other diagnoses because they, say, weren't engaging with the healthcare system as much as they would have because of fear of being infected? Yes, that's right. So there's certainly um, quite a disruption to the health system in many ways, um, both in terms of how services could be delivered because of potentially increased risk of infection from, uh, from the virus. Um, but also people may have been reluctant or more reluctant to come forward um, for treatment. So we did look at um, um, Medicare data to, have a, to try and get a handle on this. Um, and what really stood out was how important the new telehealth provisions were um, for example, there was um, oh, was it around 36% of uh, GP presentations were delivered by um, telehealth in April 2020, um, and similar high proportions for, say, mental health uh, services as well. Does telehealth do as good of a job as a face-to-face -face consultation? <laughs> that's a good question, and that's not something we've looked at. But I'm, um, I think in terms of it's certainly better than not having any consultation at all. Are there other things that might not be able to be noticed yet? So, you know, people, mm -hmm. maybe they're exercising less or more or maybe they're eating or drinking more than they would have. We, we might not see these health effects for a few years. Yes. So we did look at available data on health behaviours. Um, and it, the, the picture is actually quite mixed. Um, so in terms of physical activity, 
um, around about 21% uh, of people um, increased their physical activity in June 2020 compared with what was their usual pattern before the pandemic. Um, but also a similar proportion, about 19% decreased it. <laughs> so you can, it looks like it's a different pattern uh, for different people. Right. So it's one of those things where the average is maybe disguising the fact that there are changes happening under the surface. And we should note that the time frame for this this report that you've put out is the start of the pandemic to maybe April and May this year. So it's not including this latest wave that began in June this year, which I suppose will be uh, captured in a, in a future report that you'll put out. But uh, can you talk about the uneven distribution of... We've had a really uh, relatively easy run through the pandemic compared to other countries, but that burden hasn't been hasn't been evenly distributed across the country. No, that's exactly right. So we had data on some population groups, but not all. Um, we certainly were able to look at um, the situation for people who reside in residential aged care facilities. And while they um, accounted for around 7% of cases, they also accounted for 75% of deaths. Um, another group that we could look at was aged care workers. And it was estimated that around they were about 2.7 times as likely to contract um, the disease than the general community. And then the other thing that we were able to look at, which was really new analysis for this report, was the impact across socioeconomic groups. So what we using um, death data held by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, we were able to uh, put those deaths into socioeconomic groups. And from that, we could see that there was four times as many deaths in the lowest socioeconomic group compared to the highest. And then we, wow. when we adjusted, yeah, and then when we turned it into a, a rate, an age standardised rate, the, the uh, risk to the people in the lowest socioeconomic group was 2.6 times that of the people in the highest group. So, okay, so that's one group and they're, they're being, they're feeling that burden more strongly. Are they perhaps getting vaccinated, vaccinated at higher rates to sort of make up for this? Yeah, so we haven't got data on vaccination rates um, in the report. Um, it's certainly something that we'd like to look at in a future report. The sort of things we can say about the socioeconomic patterns is that it could be a combination of people um, having a higher risk of contracting the virus in the first place. For example, if they're less able to work from home, for example, and they have to travel to work, um, increasing their risk. But then on the other hand, they could also have an increased risk of dying if they do contract the virus. And we do know that um, chronic diseases, which are a risk factor for more severe COVID-19, the chronic diseases have a higher prevalence in the lower socioeconomic groups than in the higher socioeconomic groups. Thanks so much, Linnell. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Dr Linnell Moon is an epidemiology advisor at the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. Now, we're constantly told how good exercise is for us. It builds muscle, it strengthens our bones, it helps our heart stay healthy, uh, as regular health report listeners know. But the effects of exercise stretch beyond just your muscles and they actually reach your brain and possibly even your eyes and retina because exercise sends molecular messages that are only starting to be understood by the medical community. Some researchers believe they contain information that could develop a therapy for complex neurodegenerative diseases. One of these researchers is Dr. Josh Chu Tan, a medical researcher at the John Curtin School of Medical Research and ANU Medical School. He's one of this year's ABC Top 5 Scientists, and he's here to talk to us right now. Welcome, Josh. 
Hi, Tegan. How are you? Good. So how does exercise work in, in the sense of it could actually help your brain and your eyes? Yeah, so that's I mean, it's a good question to start with because we actually don't fully understand yet why this is. I mean, as you said, how can something that is causing, you know, pri- affecting primarily your muscles be actually affecting your brain and then potentially your eyes and your kind of neuronal health in general? Well, there's actually been quite a few landmark studies that have occurred since the turn of the century that have demonstrated that our muscles actually act like an endocrine organ. So now your endocrine organs, your endocrine system, that is the collection of organs that is responsible for releasing hormones. So to control a whole bunch of mechanisms throughout our body. So to give a few examples of that, we have, say, your thyroid gland, which helps with growth, energy expenditure. You have your pancreas, which can release insulin. And obviously that Uh, helps control our blood sugar, adrenal gland, which helped control stress, just to name a few. So it was a pretty big deal when, when it was discovered that your muscles actually act in a similar way. And they actually also release signals during exercise that travels around our blood circulation, that carries messages to the rest of our body, including the brain and very likely the retina. Now, we work on the retina, which is the tissue that lines the back of our eye and is responsible for pretty much our vision, right? So specifically, though, we work on a disease known as age-related macular degeneration. And it's a neurodegenerative disease similar to uh, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, etc. And it's the leading cause of blindness in the developed world. Right? So it affects your central vision, pretty much all of our useful vision. The problem is one in seven Australians and New Zealanders over the age of 50 will develop AMD at some point in time. And really right now, there is absolutely nothing that we can do for the most common form of it. You know, the form that accounts for, I'd say, approximately 90% of all AMD patients. Right? And I actually recently spoke to uh, Jen James, who has early AMD, about how her life has changed since she found out about her diagnosis. It was a shock because I thought, I don't think there's going to be any way out of this. and I'm going to have to plan my life, my future life, to take into consideration how am I going to get around when I can't drive, those sorts of things. I can't see animals or birds at a distance like I used to. And I used to pick out the kangaroos and things on the hill. I don't see them as much now. So that was Jan James talking about her experience with age-related macular degeneration. Why, what do we know so much so far about what can be done for AMD and how can exercise actually help? Yeah, so the problem is there's not much that can be done. There's two forms. Uh, there's the wet form, which there is a therapy for, uh, but the dry form, like I said earlier, that accounts for 90% of the patients, there's nothing that can be done, right? So, so once you have it, you kind of just have to wait and, and let it progress, right? And, and that's the problem with all neurodegenerative diseases currently, is that they're all incredibly complex. They're all multifactorial, as we call it, which means that there's a lot of moving parts to it. So if you were to try and target just one part of it, it's very likely that something else will come along and take its place, and end up causing a similar effect, end up causing the same disease progression, right? So to develop a true therapy for these diseases, such as AMD, you do need something that is multi-targeted. 
You need something that is comprehensive, that is holistic, that can affect a wide range of what eventually leads to the progression of the disease. And that's where we are hypothesizing that maybe exercise can hold the key to this, right? Maybe exercise can be a natural and I'll say in inverted commas, uh, holistic therapy that can hold the key to a lot of these disorders. Okay, so the exercise is releasing hormones, like you said, the muscles are doing that job as, a, as an endocrine organ, but how do you actually harness this and what's the time frame that we're looking at? Because um, people have been exercising for a long time, they still get AMD. For sure, for sure. And it's not, they're not releasing hormones per se, but they're releasing signals. And these signals, these messages, they are being carried in what are known as extracellular vesicles, right? It's a very hot topic in medical research right now because of the messages that they contain, because of the way that they can communicate uh, across the rest of our body. So what we're looking at and interested in is what is in these carriers. So specifically, what is the message that the muscles seem to be releasing every single time that we exercise that ends up reaching our brain and our eye. The problem, uh, the problem here is that these neurodegenerative diseases, they're all age-related, right? They're all age-related. And, you know, we're, we're not talking about artificial exercise. We're talking about trying to isolate this molecular message of exercise and the actual carriers that they're in so that we can potentially, I guess, artificially stimulate these benefits of exercise to, to people who physically might not be able to exercise to the extent that is needed to see these benefits to our brain and our eye health. So very briefly, Josh, how, what's the time frame here? Five years, 10 years, 50 years before someone <laughs> would be getting this as a treatment? Yeah, well, I mean, we're looking we're looking at a, a decent amount of time. Scientific and medical research takes a long time. You know, it has to be re- reiterated. So I, I'm talking more than than ten years. This is this is uh, research that is currently ongoing. But we are hopeful that the even the information that we find from this will potentially help lay the foundation, at least, for these multi-targeted therapies that we really need. Well, we're watching with interest. Thanks so much, Josh. Thank you, Tegan. Dr. Josh Chutan from the John Curtin School of Medical Research and ANU Medical School, one of this year's ABC Top 5 Scientists. Research published in the British Medical Journal has seriously questioned the effectiveness of the 10 commonest orthopaedic operations and procedures. Evaluating the evidence behind some shoulder and wrist surgery, knee reconstruction, spinal surgery and joint replacements, among others, they couldn't find strong evidence that these procedures and others were any more effective than non-surgical treatment. Someone who's done similar studies and carried out orthopaedic trials himself is Ian Harris, who's Professor of Orthopaedic Surgery at the University of New South Wales. Welcome back to the Health Report, Ian. Thanks for having me, Norman. So to be specific, the, 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 I'll just read them out. The, the procedures they looked at were arthroscopic, that's telos, you know, the, arthroscopic anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction, knee reconstruction, arthroscopic meniscal repair, that's repairing your cartilage, arthroscopic partial meniscectomy, so that's doing a little bit of a tear on, a, on the cartilage, arthroscopic rotator cuff repair, that's a shoulder surgery, arthroscopic subacromial decompression, also shoulder surgery, carpal tunnel decompression, that's in your wrist, lumbar spine decompression, lumbar spine fusion, total hip replacement and total knee replacement. I mean, that's just about everything that orthopaedic surgeons do. That's certainly a big part of it. Yeah, that would be 
um, by far the majority of what we do, yeah. So when they looked for published evidence according to clinical trials, what did they actually find? They looked at, it was a review of reviews. So they looked at um, systematic reviews of, of randomized trials um, and they, they concluded that um, there was evidence supporting two of those procedures, which was carpal tunnel decompression, which is a very common procedure, and total knee replacement, which is an extraordinarily common procedure. Um, and for the others, uh, there was either no evidence. So for some of those things, there were no trials being done, uh, so like meniscus repair. Uh, and for the others, the evidence was that it was not, benefit, not beneficial compared to not doing it. Uh, meniscal repair is one of your favourite things because... The average person over 55 has a tear in the meniscus without knowing it, even whether they've got knee pain or not. Yeah, meniscal repairs have become very common over recent times. Um, previously, nearly all meniscus tears were removed um, when evidence showed that removing them particularly for degenerative tears, which is most tears, uh, doesn't work. Um, surgery for that has declined. Um, but more and more surgeons are looking to repair the meniscus to sort of sew it back together again, uh, which may be very good in a, in a fresh, large tear in a young person, um, but as the sort of the limits of the surgery get pushed, it gets done in, in rattier-looking tears in older people that, that won't heal as well. Now, the one that surprised me in terms of being the jury still out was total hip replacement. I'd have thought that it would beat... Knee replacement for effectiveness, people talk about this all the time, gets people back on their feet. Um, yep, yep. And, and the evidence that we have is that total hip replacement is more effective than total knee replacement. The problem with it, it has not been subjected to a randomised controlled trial comparing it to not doing it. So it's unusual in that it's one of the most common things that we do but it's never been subjected. Um, we tried to get a trial like that up and running. It's, it's very difficult um, to do that particular trial be because it's seen as being so effective, and I think it probably is. Right, except that when you put people on a waiting list and you give them physiotherapy, 20% of people drop off because they don't need it anymore. Uh, not, for, not for hips. Oh, this uh, is more knees. Yeah, for, for knees, where uh, some studies have looked at that, and yeah, there is, uh, you know, somewhere around 10 to 15% of knee replacement patients um, can, you know, a year later not need surgery. In the one trial that was done on, again, so total knee replacement is, uh, you know, there's 60,000 done a year in Australia alone. There's only ever been one study that's compared it to not doing it. Um, and in our review, we looked at all the randomised controls to do with knee replacement, and we found about 2,500 randomised trials, but 2,500 minus one were looking at different ways of doing it. There's only ever been one study that compared doing it to not doing it, which to me is the, the most fundamental study that needs to be done. And your comment about hip replacement begs the question of whether randomised trials are needed. Because yeah, a group of orthopaedic surgeons wrote into the BMJ saying, you know, this is not the only form of evidence. Yeah. Um, well, they would, wouldn't they, I suppose, is what you're saying. That old chestnut. But, um, but no, to be fair, when people have, you know, these debates about when is a randomised trial needed and, and the sort of the joke 
debate is that uh, you know you don't need a randomised trial to show that parachutes work. Um, the the problem with that is that when people use that analogy, they've been shown um, more often than not to be wrong with whatever they were, whatever medical procedure they were referring to when they drew that analogy. But um, uh, some analogies that are used are things like cataract surgery. Uh, total hip replacement, where the change in quality of life, the reduction in pain, the improvement in function, you know, for cataract surgery, the improvement in visual acuity, um, your, your walking ability after hip replacement is so large, it's such a, a, a large difference that people argue that a randomised trial is not required. So where does that leave us? Because orthopaedic surgery is not alone here, just for any orthopaedic surgeon listening. I mean, there's still cardiologists doing stents for angina when medical therapy is just as good, bypass surgery and so on. So they're not alone. Um, do we need no, a, Where do we go from here? Because it's costing yeah, us a lot on our private health insurance, not to mention the health bill. Yeah, the evidence for other surgical procedures in other fields is is just as bad or worse. Um, so uh, at least orthopaedic surgeons are looking at it. Um, but the thing about orthopaedics is, yeah, this is where the money's going. So in Australia alone, uh, if you look at all the procedures that are listed on the MBS, the one that costs us the most money, uh, which is upwards of about $2 billion a year, is knee replacement. The number two is hip replacement. And not far down the list is spine fusion. So it's it's the orthopedic procedures that we are really spending our money on. So I think it's you know the the burden is on us to show that we're spending that money on things that work. We'll come back to this, Ian. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Ian Harris is Professor of Orthopaedic Surgery at the University of New South Wales. One of the most toxic risk factors for your brain, heart and kidneys is high blood pressure. And while globally one in three men and women have high blood pressure, a high proportion don't have it under control. The consequences in terms of heart attacks, strokes, dementia and chronic kidney damage are enormous. According to new research, a single pill containing a quadruple combination of quarter doses of blood pressure medicines could transform blood pressure treatment. Clara Char led the research. Clara is a cardiologist and professor of medicine at the University of Sydney and academic director of the West Applied Research Centre. Welcome back to the Health Report, Clara. Thank you, Norman. How are you? Yeah, I'm excellent. What are the challenges this quad pill tries to solve? Yeah, look, the, it tries to solve the problem of blood pressure control. While, you know, as you noted, a, a third or more of the population have high blood pressure, a large percentage, at least half of them, don't have it under control. And, and that's probably because we're not treating it well enough. Uh, you know, and, and people need their doors adjusted, so, they go off their medication and what have you. Yeah, look, so the common way, uh, when a person has hypertension, they start on one medicine and that uh, medicine is one type of drug and then they, you know, come back and they don't have good blood pressure control so they start another medicine and then they might come back and start another medicine. Now, that would be a good situation if they came back multiple times and the uh, clinician looking after them kept on up titrating. We know that the majority of people need at least two types of medicines to control blood pressure, but the majority of people are currently only on one type of blood pressure lowering uh, treatment. So in other words, they never get past first base um, in terms of uh, treating their blood pressure. Now, this but this this research builds on a, a, a long a long a, a long standing body of research which you've been involved with and others called the polypill, where you 
cut down on side effects, but also increase the effectiveness by, in theory, by adding different medications together. And in this one, you've got four medications, two broadly relax the blood vessels, one's a diuretic and one's uh, a beta blocker uh, in one medication. When you did the trial, what did you find? Yeah, so so this was um, a double-blind randomised controlled trial. So what we did was people with hypertension were randomised to either get the quad pill or um, monotherapy, in other words, one drug at, you know, one dose. Patients nor their um, clinicians knew which one they started on and they were allowed to add any other medicines on top of them um, in, in terms of, you know, add additional medicines as they would in usual care. So at 12 weeks, which is what we call our primary outcome um, time point, people on the monotherapy, so the single drug, about 40% of them had their medicines up titrated. And people on the quad pill, only about 15% had had their medicines up titrated. But the people that started on the quad pill arm, about 80% of them had got their blood pressure controlled, whereas that was just under 60% on the sort of common strategy arm. So it showed that initiating with the quad pill was much more effective than initiating on the monotherapy arm. The other thing we looked at is that we follow these patients to 12 months. You might expect that the monotherapy arm, that's the, the usual kind of arm, would catch up because they could add other medicines across time. But really, interestingly, they didn't catch up. And at 12 months, we still had the same numbers, 80% control in the quad pill arm and six percent control or just under 60 percent control in the monotherapy arm. Another argument for the polypill is that you get fewer side effects because you've got lower doses of each medication in the pill. What was, this, what yeah. was, was that true in this study? Yeah, so we didn't get fewer side effects. We got uh, no difference in adverse events between the two groups. Yeah, I suppose on one hand one might expect fewer side effects but the uh, common strategy arm, um, we did start with herbosartan, which is probably the lowest side effect profile medication um, there is. So I suppose we're comparing it against something pretty good. I think that, um, you know, uh, we probably need to look at that in more detail. And unfortunately, because of COVID, we were a little bit what we call underpowered. We weren't able to recruit all of the patients we want to get a significant difference in the side effect profile. But what we can say at this point is that there was no differences between the two arms and there was no, no increase in adverse events or no differences in, in you know, bad, bad events. Now, the bad news here is nobody's making a quad pill. You, these are competitor, competitive pharmaceutical companies and they're unlikely to get together to produce one. I mean, how do you actually implement this? Yeah, so at the moment, I, I, I mean, if I, I've got keen patients and keen people around the, the place that would like to implement it just right now, and, and I suppose one thing I can say to them is all of these medicines that we use are available in Australia, and if you were to be keen and go to a compounding pharmacy, they will, they can, you know, cut them up and, and, and sort of make it up for you, so to speak. Obviously, that's not an off-the-shelf approach. The other thing I can say is that, you know, the usual way in Australia is still to start on one drug, and we can at least do dual 
dual combination or, or two drug uh, combination therapy in Australia, though it isn't at low dose, but that is kind of another alternative that we've got sort of on the market here today. Okay. Well, in terms of working with other companies, I mean, gosh, you know, sometimes I, I think I'm a researcher, but do I need to uh, branch out to try to work <laughs> out this problem of how other companies uh, have to come together and, and, and work this out to make, we, make this medicine? Um, well, I have had a few calls we'll, we'll about have to, that, yeah, we'll, so I'm hoping someone else sorts it out. <laughs> we're just about out of time, but thanks, Clara. Fascinating research, and if you get the solution, we'll tell the audience. Professor Clara Chow is a cardiologist and professor of medicine at the University of Sydney and is also academic director of the Westmead Applied Research Centre. So let's go to the mailbag. Yes, of course, if you want to ask us a question, do email us healthreport at abc.net.au. And Norman, next week is a special on borderline personality disorder and we won't have a mailbag. So it's a bumper crop for us today. A couple for you to answer and a couple for me to answer. Well, let's go to start with you. This comes from Christine. Hi, guys. Avid listener here. I was listening to your segment on ticks and the bad reactions, how there was no mention of mammalian meat allergy. I was diagnosed three years ago and can't eat mammal meats or byproducts, dairy, wheat or carrageenan, Irish moss. I can't even have anti-venom as it's made by horses. The alpha-gal sugar protein found in all these foods are in the tick saliva, so if I get bitten, I react badly. However, ticks flock to me over any other person around me. Oh, wow. Christine, thank you so much for your message. And yes, we should have mentioned that. It's, um, it was something that we weren't able to cover. And yeah, mammalian tick allergy or mammalian meat allergy that's caused by ticks is actually something that was first discovered in Australia by a researcher called uh, Cheryl Van Union. And it, yeah, it's a thing. It's, it's, you know, it's rare, but it's not that rare. It does happen. And, uh, and while there's not much you can do about it once you've got it, I, I thought I would at least kind of follow up on this question from Christine by saying, well, yeah, if ticks are flocking to you, then the best thing you can do is protect yourself from getting bitten by ticks. And the, the best way of preventing tick bites is uh, the, the usual sorts of things, long sleeve shirts, pants tucked into socks, light coloured clothing. And you can also get uh, insect repellent that contains DEET. Uh, and you can even put that, that, you can even get fabrics that are infused with that. So if you're going into places where ticks might be, take those precautions because, yeah, as we heard, they can have pretty severe reactions in some people. Interesting. Yeah. And now a question for you, Norman, from Joe, who's asking how many health workers in New South Wales are now at risk because their Pfizer vaccinations were more than six months ago? Are these perhaps going to represent new clusters as a sign that immunity is waning? Well, it's true that um, the immunisations started in March, April of this year, not just of health workers, um, some aged care workers, they came a bit later, unfortunately, um, but um, aged care residents and healthcare workers in general. So th this is an issue. If the Israeli data are representative of Australia, they are starting to deteriorate in terms of their immunity round about now. And the, I think the federal government is beginning to think about how they're going to be boosted um, because they do need to be boosted almost certainly to protect themselves, but also to protect others in terms of transmission risk. Remembering that the transmission risk reduction for Delta is probably about 50%, so it's not 100%. The good news is that they are still well covered against severe disease, but the the issue does become um, much more acute as time goes on. So we're coming up to the time next, this month, next month, the month after, where some sort of booster campaign, rolling booster campaign is going to have to be started. Yeah, and as uh, Joe says, health workers are particularly 
crucial group because not only are they they are in they're in environments where they might catch COVID, but they're also dealing with people who might be vulnerable, so they don't want to transmit it either. Well, that's right. And as New South Wales, recent interesting thing asked about New South Wales, but Victoria is also going to be a problem too. Is that um, the peak in hospital utilisation is going to be in October? Hoping that the seventy percent opening up doesn't create another peak, but let's assume that's it. If you get spread in healthcare workers in hospitals and they're put on furlough, our hospitals are really not going to be able to cope with this surge in October and then Victoria a little bit later. And Victoria's had some bad episodes of spread in hospitals requiring large numbers of staff to be um, furloughed and that's not when the hospitals have been under the COVID strain. Mm. Here's one for you, Tegan, from Martin. I have a cat-obsessed wife. I listened attentively to your recent episode that included a short section on toxoplasmosis. It just left me hanging. Tut, tut, Tegan. (laughs) I understand if someone is severely ill with toxo, they will seek treatment for it. But what is the treatment for all those people who unwittingly have the toxoplasmosis parasite, but at such a low level, they're not noticeably ill? And then he, he... compliments you by saying, I enjoy the podcast. Uh, thanks, Martin. Well, yeah, it is it, it is interesting. And part of the reason why it is difficult to treat is because it's super gross and it basically forms cysts in your body where the, the parasite is kind of enclosed in it, which means it's hard for the immune system to get to. I think what I really took from that uh, conversation with Ian Sutherland, the researcher, is that it's quite an emerging area of research that we don't really know a lot about how it can uh, harm people. But what we do know about toxoplasmosis, the, the biggest concern, I think, well, the, at least the, the version that I heard, I suppose, as a woman who's had pregnancies, is that if you catch toxo for the first time while you're pregnant, or if you're exposed to that parasite for the first time while you're pregnant, it can harm the unborn baby. Uh, which I assume means that if you've been exposed to it in the past, perhaps you've got that um, that pre-existing immunity to it. I think it's one of those things that if most adults who ca- who catch it wouldn't even know that it's a very, very mild illness. But if you're worried, talk to your doctor about it. And toxo in babies is actually very rare. It's not nice when it happens, but it's very rare given the number of people who have cats as pets. I'm and an, another... I'm an okay. anti-cat person. <laughs> We know, Norman, you say it every opportunity you get. Uh, A question for you, another COVID question, Norman, from Larry, who's in his early 70s. He's had both AstraZeneca vaccinations, recently been diagnosed with Parkinson's, lives in Bondi and is an avid gym goer. And Larry's asking, is it safe for me to return to the gym when New South South Wales opens up with 70% double dose vaccinations? I hope you don't mind me imposing on you like this, but you are someone I trust. Very kind of you, Larry. Um, So... I too have had uh, both AstraZeneca vaccinations and um, I'm not going to return to the gym when it opens up uh, at 70% double dose. Um, and I suppose it's simply because I could catch the the infection, even though I'm not going to get sick from it, so I'll be safe, but I could then spread it to others and it would be um, unfortunate. So I think the risk of spread at gyms is significant, even though I'm protected and you'd be protected, Larry. You're not going to get seriously ill, but you could bring it back and spread it elsewhere. And I just don't, I just think it's too early to be opening gyms. That's my view and that's what I'm doing. But Larry, the the other people at the gym will be immunised. So your chances of actually catching it at the gym are probably fairly low. Fair enough. I don't, I really don't want to um, keep Larry back from his health and strengthen his muscles in his early stages. Well, yeah. So Michael is writing to you, Tegan, about the Luigi Fontana interview you did, which was really interesting on the future of healthcare and medical research. 
Hi, Tegan. I thought this was one of the most important stories of the year, and I was disappointed when the interview was cut short. Our health leaving people hanging by the sounds of things. That's right. It was one of those days where we probably went over and had to get out. Anyway, our healthcare model is skewed towards intervention at the back end rather than the front end. There needs to be a paradigm shift to educate our population from early childhood about how we prevent disease. It would be great to hear about communities who have adopted the learnings from Dr. Dan Butner's Blue Zone research. It would be great to hear the health report follow up on this because if we as a nation don't start that national conversation now, our citizens are only going to become more reliant on an already overwhelmed health system. Oh, I couldn't agree more with Michael's comment. And it's definitely a theme that I'm seeing, I'm hearing coming through with so many different health researchers that I've been speaking to recently, this frustration with treating effectively symptoms of a broken health system rather than the health care system. Uh, Luigi put it, put it quite well, but uh, I definitely think, Norman, well, it is really something that the health report has covered pretty consistently over the years. And I'm really looking forward to continuing this conversation because like Michael says, we have to do something now because it's only going to get worse. Yep. And some of those orthopedic procedures we were talking about could be avoided um, if you, um, with, with some prevention, particularly total knee replacement. Well, again, please email us if you've got questions or comments. We love to read them, good and bad. We like the good ones, but we'll accept the bad ones as well. Healthreport at abc.net.au. And we'll see you next time. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.